couple of quotes this morning to remind us of the importance of the Reformation. Uh, that's not the subject of my sermon, of course, when the, we're in Daniel. Uh, Luther once said, every week I preach on justification by faith. Because every week my people forget that they're justified by faith. Second one is this one. A simple layman armed with the scripture is greater than the mightiest pope without it. Hallelujah. That is so true. And the final one is, as long as we live, there is never enough singing. I like that. Just think about the solas that come out of just those quotes. Sola fide, saved by faith. Sola gratia, saved by grace alone, through faith alone. Sola Christos, through Christ alone. And then how about just the amount of singing that came out of the Protestant Reformation. Songs that really nailed the theme of the scripture. Uh, what an awesome thing to think about a mighty fortress is our God. And we stand in, a, uh, in profound continuity with those who went before us. We wouldn't have missionaries in Guatemala had it not been for the Protestant Reformation. Praise God that the scripture can be read by his people and interpreted and applied to life. And you don't go through a pope to do it. Right? You have the word of God right before you. And it tells us that there's only one mediator between God and man. And that is Jesus Christ the righteous. Well, in Daniel 1.17, we learn that God gifted Daniel with the ability to understand and interpret dreams. That particular gift to Daniel was quintessential for their survival. God is going to use that gift, but he's also going to use that gift to magnify his greatness. God is great. He's worthy of our praise. So the gift to Daniel and his friends helped them mightily. They survived because of that gift in chapter 2. And even the pagan astrologers and enchanters of Babylon are given a reprieve from death because of Daniel's ability to interpret this dream. But the most important thing is that when you get to verse 19, and we're going to read it in a few moments, Daniel is going to exalt and praise the God of heaven. And that's our God. And this is an important designation in chapter 2. It's used actually five times. And the polemic is important because there's a pantheon of gods in Babylon, but there's only one true God, right? And so the wisdom of God is seen as uh, counter-distinctive and or greater uh, antithetical than any wisdom in the world because God is great and His wisdom is greater. And it, as a matter of fact, we know, we know in 1 Corinthians that it's the wisdom of God, the foolishness of the cross, the gospel of Jesus Christ that confounds. And we know that actually the Bible tells us in chapter 1, verse 30 of 1 Corinthians that Jesus Christ is the very wisdom of God. But our God is greater. Our God is stronger. Our God is higher than any other. He is awesome in power. In case you didn't know that, I'm quoting you a psalm and a song that you have sung in this church many, many times. So chapter 2 is a unit within itself. But here's the deal. 
I can't preach all of chapter 2 in one setting. You'll probably be thankful that I'm not trying to do that, right? But chapter 2 is one unit, and it is, of course, all related. And verse 1, we're going to find that it mentions the second year of Nebuchadnezzar's reign. Well, don't let that frustrate you, because chapter 1 ends with it saying that Daniel finished his three years in his training, and you would think, well, that's contradictive. If Nebuchadnezzar is in his second year, how can Daniel have finished his third year? And that's simply because the year that he came to power would not be counted as the first year of his reign in Babylonian thought. So people were doing a lot of things in Babylon. Uh, They were attempting to read the future through astrology and horoscope type things. And people would go to great lengths to try to figure out what was in the future. Or how could they predict the future. One such way was to cut an animal's entrails out. And dependent upon the way they fell out, they could predict the future. I would suggest that you not try this. Right? But they were doing these things. Dreams were actually very popular in determining what the future may hold. But what about a dream of a king? Now you would have to say that's very important, right? Because the king would be thinking that perhaps the gods, small g, s on the end, right? Plurality of gods was in fact maybe trying to predict to them what might be out there on the horizon in the future for a king. So let's couple that together with the fact that God and many times in the Old Testament, would use dreams to reveal himself to people. So God is ready to speak to Nebuchadnezzar, and he's going to do so through a dream, and poor old Nebuchadnezzar will never be the same. He will display, our God will display his greatness and his power in amazing ways. That's the lesson today. We're going to see two things. We're going to see that God works in impossible situations, and He does so to reveal His absolute greatness. And then we're going to see from the text of Scripture that our God is pleased to work in His sovereignty and greatness. And you ought to pray and trust God in every single situation in life because God is sovereign. All right, are you ready for the text? It's kind of lengthy. Chapter 2, beginning in verse 1. In the second year of the reign of Nebuchadnezzar, Nebuchadnezzar had dreams. His spirit was troubled, and his sleep left him. He's an insomniac at this point. Some of you Baptists that way? Melatonin. I took some Baptist bourbon last night. It's called NyQuil, right? (laughs) And, you know, sleep deprivation or whatever that, you know, I've got just head cold. I told Natalie sitting there, I was like, is it me or is everything turned down? And she said, it's you. I just can't hear. So if I get real loud, I mean, I just feel like I'm in a something. You would not, you know, we're supposed to sing, right, Luther? <laughs> you would not want to hear me sing today. It's really, really, really bad. So I was frustrated that I couldn't sing today. But thank the Lord I can speak, right? In difficult situations, the power of God, and I'm thankful for it. But here's the text. Then the king commanded that the magicians, the enchanters, the sorcerers, And the Chaldeans be summoned to tell the king his dreams. So they came in and stood before the king. And the king said to them, I had a dream. And my spirit is troubled to know the dream. 
Then the Chaldeans said to the king in Aramaic. Again, 2-4 through 7, there's a shift to Aramaic. I'll tell you why. I think that's the case in a few moments. O king, live forever. Tell your servants the dream, and we will show you the interpretation. The king answered and said to the Chaldeans, The word for me is firm. If you do not make known to me the dream, look, and its interpretation, you shall be torn limb from limb, and your houses shall be laid in ruins. But if you show the dream and its interpretation, you shall receive from me gifts and rewards of great honor. Therefore, show me the dream and its interpretation. They answered a second time and said, Let the king tell his servants the dream, and we will show its interpretation. The king answered and said, I know with certainty that you are trying to gain time because you see that the word for me is firm. If you do not make the dream known to me, there is but one sentence for you. You have agreed to speak lying and corrupt words before me till the times change. Therefore, tell me the dream, and I shall know that you can show me its interpretation. The Chaldeans answered the king and said, There's not a man on earth who can meet the king's demand. For no great and powerful king has asked such a thing of a magician or enchanter or Chaldean. Chaldean, the thing that the king asks is difficult. If you've got a mind for the word, you'll understand this. And no one can show it to the king except the gods whose dwelling is not with flesh. Oh, but it is. Right? Twelve. Because of this, the king was angry and very furious and commanded that all the wise men of Babylon be destroyed. So the decree went out, and the wise men were about to be killed, and they sought Daniel and his companions to kill them. Then Daniel replied with prudence and discretion to Arioch, or Arioch, either way in Hebrew, the cap in Aramaic, the captain of the king's guard, who had gone out to kill the wise men of Babylon, he said this to Arioch, who had gone out. He declared to Arioch, the king's captain, why is the decree of the king so urgent? Then Arioch made the matter known to Daniel, and Daniel went in and requested the king to appoint him a time that he might show the interpretation to the king. Then Daniel went into his house and made the matter known to Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, his companions, and told them to seek mercy from the God of heaven concerning this mystery, so that Daniel and his companions might not be destroyed with the rest of the wise men of Babylon. Then the mystery was revealed to Daniel in a vision of the night. Then Daniel blessed the God of heaven, and Daniel answered and said, Blessed be the name of God forever and ever. To him belong might, wisdom, and might. He changes times and seasons. He removes kings and sets up kings. He gives wisdom to the wise and knowledge to those who have understanding. He reveals deep and hidden things. He knows what is in the darkness, and the light dwells with him. To you, O God of my fathers, I give thanks and praise, for you have given me wisdom and might, and have made known to me what we ask of you, for you have made known to us the king's matter. Thus the sermon title, God's Wisdom and the Future. First, God uses impossible situations to reveal his greatness. God's going to use a dream to communicate to the king. 
Yet the Bible refers to Nebuchadnezzar in the book of Jeremiah as a servant of God. Now we're thinking that Nebuchadnezzar's this despot and he's kind of doing his own thing. And he is. He's, he's a jerk. We know that. He's a, he's a mighty leader uh, of the entire known world at the time. We get that. But the Bible will remind us that God is using Nebuchadnezzar as an instrument of his will to display his greatness in the midst of an impossible situation. You understand that God was using Nebuchadnezzar to carry out a plan foremost in the lives of his people. That's what he's doing. God used him to carry out this plan. He was busy building his empire, but in actuality, it was a school where God had sent his chosen people to teach them lessons that they would never forget about the greatness of God. So Nebuchadnezzar is like any other world leader who might lose a lot of sleep at night. Right? Just think about this for a moment. Everything they have to think about as they would put their head on their pillow at night regarding the title they hold. And most of them think, like Nebuchadnezzar, uh, that everything revolves around them. It's just his world. We're walking through it. Right? And that's exactly how he was thinking. Yet God holds the whole world in his hands. God was in control. So we would be wise to think about the future. It's not enough to merely live. We must live in reference to our sovereign God who controls all things. So the dreams left Nebuchadnezzar an insomniac, and the dreams were disturbing. One commentator says that those dreams felt like a hot iron stuck to his brain. Can you imagine what Nebuchadnezzar was thinking? Have you ever woke up? Have you ever been awakened in the night and you had a disturbing dream? Don't look at me so spiritual. You probably had one last night, right? And you're wondering what in the world's going on with this, and you're disturbed, and you think about it all day long. You know, you can't ever remember all uh, the aspects of it. You know, there's times you want to look up and say, Natalie, did you remember what I dreamed? Can you help me out here fill in the gaps, right? Well, I've had dreams before that I got up to preach and forgot my Bible, or my notes were gone, or something like that. You know, that's disturbing, right? It is, and maybe you have. But ramp that up a couple of hundred times and think about what's going on in the mind of Nebuchadnezzar once he sees this dream and doesn't know how to interpret it and what's going on. So what does he do? He calls the spiritual gurus of the day. Now check this out. These folks were getting a check. They were getting paid for being spiritual gurus. This group would have made millions with infomercials. Right? And the 800 numbers. And you could probably even call at 2 o'clock in the morning when you're having your dream. And as long as you told them what you were dreaming, they would give you some kind of concoction of an interpretation of what they think that means. Now again, Nebuchadnezzar is the most powerful man on the planet. And he says, guys, I want to know the dream. Uh, some think by the, the KJV translation that Nebuchadnezzar had actually forgotten his dream. That's not true at all. So I would say the KJV is is not the best translation there. It is actually, he knows exactly what the dream is, but he's not letting them off the hook. He knows that they get paid a paycheck, they're spiritual gurus, but they don't know anything. Nebuchadnezzar's smart, he knows this. So the KJV actually gives us a translation that it's gone from me. But that's not what it actually means. It really means I'm serious about this, 
And I'm telling you now, I want to know the dream and its interpretation. So he's testing their integrity. He's testing these spiritual gurus because the reality is, I don't think Nebuchadnezzar trusted them one bit. And he returns and says, my decision is firm. You must give me the dream and its interpretation. Don't you love these religious experts? You know, in verse 4, they're trying to buy time, of course. Uh, They don't know what the deal is, but they're trying their best because they know that the king has the power to say you're dead. But in verse 4, Aramaic starts to be used. And I would tell you that in this time, Aramaic was the language of the day. It was the universal language. And I believe God does this because of the cosmic scope of the greatness of God that God intended for all languages to hear. There's a reason for it. If we go over to the New Testament, God intends for Jesus Christ to go to all the nations in a cosmic scope. And so God was echoing a sentiment to the nations to say to all of them, I want everybody universally to be able to understand what I'm about to tell you about our God versus false gods. They don't exist, but He is great, glorious, and mighty. Now, I'm going to keep talking about Aramaic unless somebody says amen. Okay, all right, let's keep going. So that's what's going on in that particular part. But they're trying to brown nose a little bit. They're trying to buy time to, to be able to get a little out of the king to find out how they might interpret it. And he says to them, if you don't tell me the dream, I'm going to make your body a pile of parts in one pile. You know, actually, it was actually called drawing and quartering. This is the way that Babylonians killed people. Cut them up in parts. Stacked them up. And Nebuchadnezzar is saying, I'm going to do this to all the spiritual gurus in the entire nation if you don't give me the answer. And then he adds, and I'm going to turn your houses into garbage dumps. This is serious stuff, right? But if you interpret it, it, I will give you incredible honor and dignity. I think it's kind of irrelevant for him to say that at this point. Why? Because they don't know the dream. They can't give him the interpretation. And at this point, he is challenging them. This despot with the power Life and death, right there in his hands, is challenging them, and they are absolutely, utterly desperate at this point. To die by dismemberment would not be tops on my list. How about you? I don't think any of us would want this. So he comes back, and he says, stop buying time. Uh, You're trying to conspire with lying, lying words, and see what their response is. Three things, threefold response. No one on earth can do this. We have... Our master's degree from Babylonian divinity schools. And if we can't do it, no one can do it. We can even read entrails. I mean, come on, give us a break, king. We can read guts. Let's say it that way, right? But this was all setting the stage for the wisdom of God as displayed through Daniel. Don't miss that. Number two, no king has ever asked something like this from his musicians. In other words... King, have you read the Magician Handbook 101? It's not in there. You can't ask us this. It's not part of our job description. You can't do this. Don't you know how it's supposed to work? (laughs) You tell us the dream. 
We give you our interpretation, howbeit made up interpretation, right? The third argument is absolutely fantastic. Only divine beings can do something like this. Exactly, right? They don't live among us. We don't have that kind of access. And this is not only a stage set for Daniel, but it's also a stage set for the true and living God to manifest himself. So Nebuchadnezzar is violently angry at this point because the wise men cannot answer. So he gives the order to his chief security guy, Arioch, and he says, hey, you're the chief of secret service. I want you to go out and I want you to immediately kill every single one of them, which makes Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, that's who they are. By the way, you should never read Matthew 2 when the wise men come from the east the same way again. Because you know they only came because of Daniel's influence on them. We're going to get, to, maybe, maybe I should preach on that at Christmas, right? But that's what's going on. And they're, they're, they're now here's the thing. In chapter 1, they're sort of volunteering God to be faithful to help them, Right? But when you get to chapter 2, Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah are absolutely dependent totally on God. In chapter 1, they volunteer God. Hey, give us the Yahweh veggie diet. At the end of that time, see if we're not better. But here, ho, totally different. There's a death warrant on them. In chapter 1, there was a pressure to compromise and Daniel's resolve to obey. But here it is total trust on the sovereignty of God to deliver them. Which brings us to point number 2. Pray and trust God. Pray and trust God, for in Him are hidden all the treasures of wisdom. And beginning in verse 17, Daniel is going to go up to his house. Once he finds out the king's edict, that they're all going to die, he's going to go to his home. Again, Daniel, if we count the ages right, years, he's probably 17 to 19 years of age. So in verse uh, 14, we see what happens here in the text of Scripture. With Daniel with prudence and discretion going before Arioch, declaring to him the king's, he declared to him what the king said, and Daniel's response was to go to his home. Now, again, if you're Daniel and you survive chapter one's events, what would you be saying at this point, knowing full well that you're about to die? Well, might you question what God is doing? I mean, you've delivered us miraculously because we've looked ten times better than anyone else in Nebuchadnezzar's court. But now, you're telling us that we're going to die. And we may say something like, God, did you deliver us so that you might kill us? And, and aren't we like this at times? We think like this. Uh, and we also think this. God, is all of this happening to me because of a king's dream? I mean, this is Nebuchadnezzar's fault. It has nothing to do with me. Why is this affecting me? What God did in chapter 1 seems to be in vain because they're going to end up dead in chapter 2 because Nebuchadnezzar has a bad dream. Did Daniel look at it that way? No, he didn't. We often think, well, if something bad happens, doesn't God owe me mercies tomorrow? Don't we live like that at times? Yes, we do. But Daniel keeps his composure. He doesn't panic he knew that God was in control. So this would be an opportunity for the sovereign God of the universe to display his wisdom and his power and his faithfulness. So this was all that trouble really amounted to when it comes to Daniel. But when we're in trouble, what's our response? So therefore, Daniel has another platform 
to display his ultimate trust in God. Is this how we look at our troubles? Did you know that God is sovereign even over your troubles? Folks, he's faithful. And you can trust him. And so in this chapter, Daniel's in a situation where there's no way out. Chapter 1, he had a little bit of wiggle room. Chapter 2, folks, he absolutely has no way out. But Daniel uses discretion. He uses discernment. He doesn't act like the enchanters saying two or three different times to Nebuchadnezzar, All right, king, just go ahead and follow protocol. Give us the dream and we'll give it to you. Here, Daniel uses discretion. He manifests total obedience to the word of God, trusting the Lord. Doesn't challenge. He doesn't say, according to Babylonian constitutional rights, this is what I should be able to do. He didn't do that. Instead, he inquires about the urgency of the situation. In other words, why so fast? Why is it that the king wants us dead pronto? What's going on here? So he turns right around and puts his faith on the line. Now notice, he tells the enchanters, you don't have time. But when they represent Daniel before the king, he actually gives Daniel time. Why do you think that's the case? I think it's because the sovereign God of the universe was working in Nebuchadnezzar to give him the thought that, hey, I need to give this Daniel time. So, what does Daniel do? He doesn't jump on the first wave out of town. And, uh, of course, he probably could have tried to escape, but that's not what he does. He goes to his three friends and he says to them, It's time to pray. Right? Why? Because prayer is our greatest expression of our dependence upon God. If you didn't write anything else down, write that down. Prayer is absolutely our greatest expression of our ultimate and utter dependence upon God. So he gathers believing brothers, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah together. And, of course, we could look at this and say they had no other recourse. You better pray. Could we not? We actually could say that prayer was their only option and God answering their prayer was absolutely their only hope. So they prayed. And what did they pray? Verse 18 tells us. And this is interesting, is it not? So Daniel and his companions might not be destroyed and told them to seek, look, seek mercy from the God of heaven concerning this mystery so that we will not be destroyed. Does that seem at all like the way you would pray at this point? Now think about if you were in this situation. I've already told you how Daniel prayed. Maybe I should, ask, should have asked you how would you pray before we actually read it when you're in this situation. But it's very, very interesting that he answered or asked God for compassion. Perhaps there's a reason for this. If you look over in 1 Kings chapter 8, 1 Kings chapter 8, in Solomon's dedicatory prayer, this is what Solomon prayed when the temple was dedicated. Chapter 8, verse 49 of 1 Kings. Then hear in heaven your dwelling place, their prayer and their plea, and maintain their cause. Listen to verse 50. And forgive your people who have sinned against you and all their transgressions, that they have committed against you, and grant them compassion in the sight of those who carried them captive, that they may have compassion on them. Folks, do y'all think Daniel knew his Bible? 
Do you think he knew anything about the stories of Scripture like Solomon's dedicatory prayer? I would tell you that he absolutely knew it. I think they were actually thinking and praying this specific passage. 1 Kings chapter 8, verse 50. Their prayer was not, help! We're in trouble! And I think that prayer is fine. That's all you can get out at that point, right? Are we not, do we not live like that? Yikes! Help! God! And that's the extent of our prayer. And I'm sure that kind of prayer is fine. In certain situations, sometimes the most earnest prayers at the short notice, uh, I think, are the most effective. Help me, God. Right? Because of utter dependence. But I believe Daniel and his friends were steeped in the Word of God. And when you're steeped in the Word of God, then your prayer life is accurate because you're praying the Word of God. And you're not interested in self, you're interested in the greatness and grandeur of God. And that makes a difference. Do you know what happens when we're steeped in the Word and begin to pray? You pray the Word of God. And what do you do? You look for the promises of God. And the promise was, when you're in captivity and you pray to me, then I will give you mercy and compassion. That's good stuff. They knew it. You pray the Word and you look for the promise. You connect the promise of God and His Word. And then you realize that God is faithful to His Word. Psalm 138, verse 2. Listen to this. Psalm 138, verse 2. I bow down toward your holy temple and give thanks to your name for your steadfast love and your faithfulness. Underscore this. 138, 2b. For you have exalted, for you have exalted above all things. Listen to this. Your name and your word. Y'all getting this? How important is the Word of God for the people of God? God hasn't exalted a leader. God hasn't exalted a man. God has exalted a name that is above all names. And He's exalted His Word. And God will not do anything apart from this book. He's exalted His Word. Now, He latches on to that promise. If you read Psalm 119, of which I think Daniel wrote, how many times does he run to the promises of God? All the way throughout Psalm 119. So basically Daniel says to these guys, here's the issue. We're going to die unless God sticks to his promise. And he makes us objects of his compassion to our captors. Even though they're threatening us to take our lives. And this is how we know to pray. They trusted the bare word of God and clung like a rope to the very promises of God. And folks, this is the ultimate posture of the prayer of faith, is it not? When there's nothing left to do and no other recourse, and God shuts you up into a place and He hems you in, what do you do? You trust God. And you trust the very promises of God. This is faith. Now at this point is the very center of the chapter. When the mystery was revealed, verse 19, to Daniel in a vision of the night. Then Daniel blessed the God of heaven. That's the center of it. The secret was revealed to Daniel in a night vision. Notice how Daniel responds. God answers their prayer. And what does Daniel do, church family? He bursts forth into praise to God. Many scholars will note that the arrangement of this particular wording in 19 to the end of the chapter is actually in the wording of a hymn or a song. Isn't that awesome? So, don't you think the people 
would have actually sung the song of Daniel throughout time in response to a God who was compassionate upon his people. And he revealed himself. Why? Because he's the great and awesome God of heaven. But there's a blend of theology and worship here. Are y'all listening? That's why it's so important that we sing songs that are theologically sound that honor God. So what does Daniel do as a response to God answering this prayer? He weds together a song or a prayer that is steeped in theology that leads him to worship God. It moves his affections, takes what's in the hard drive of his mind and presses it down into his affections so that he bursts forth into praise to God. It's similar to the song at the sea when God delivered the Israelites out of Egypt. You ever read that song? Are you listening? Wake up. Are you listening? It's a song of gratitude to God because he brought them out of Egypt. How about the song of Deborah? Judges 5, similar. How about Hannah's song? Don't you love that? 1 Samuel 2, 1 through 19. Mary's magnificent song sounds much, much like Hannah's out of Samuel. And of course, then you have Paul's hymns. The Kenosis passage, Philippians 2, 5 through 11. Jesus did not consider himself, consider it robbery to be equal with the Father, but made himself of no reputation, coming in the form of a servant. Right? That's a song by Paul. And then, of course, we have 1 Timothy 3.16, manifested in the flesh, vindicated by the Spirit. It's songs that are meant to be sung. They're theologically sound. But here's what he does. He praises God for his wisdom and his power. And notice it's the first sub-point under point two. And you and me, we all ought to praise God for his wisdom and power. Not just, no, it shouldn't just be Daniel. It ought to be us praising him for his wisdom and his power. Daniel doesn't congratulate himself as a good Baptist. Oh, I'm just such a good, righteous person that everything I ask you, king in heaven, you ought to just give it to me. But that's the way Americans think God should act, right? Just a celestial bellhop that just gives you what you need in your time of need. This prayer is about the attributes of God. Is it not? We talked about that last Sunday night. Isn't it interesting? That Daniel begins to enumerate the attributes of God in praise for his wisdom. He talks about his eternality in verse 20. He talks about his omniscience and omnipotence in verse 20. He talks about his sovereignty over the nations. You don't have to fret about the nations because God sets them up and tears them down. God puts kings in there and then deposes of them according to his sovereign will. Verse 21, his gifts, his wisdom, his knowledge. His understanding, uh, his revelation in verse 22, his faithfulness to his people in verse 23, and for answering Daniel's prayer in verse 23. Are y'all getting this? He's praying the attributes of his God back to him. There's praise upon his lips. In other words, God alone is God. And then he praises him for his absolute sovereignty. And we should praise him for his sovereignty. He acknowledges that God controls the times and the seasons. God changes the epochs of time according to his sovereign plan. He's acknowledging that where we are now is in God's sovereign plan. Daniel knew he himself was right in the midst of where God would have him be. Do you know that today, that God is in control? God put him there. God is behind every situation in Daniel's life. God is in charge. He removes kings. 
He establishes kings. He knew who Nebuchadnezzar was. He put him there. Right? God put him there. He established him. But he also can remove him rather quickly. And as a matter of fact, he does. Soon. He's going to take his throne away. He's going to act like a... He's going to be like a wild animal in the wilderness for a little while, and then God's going to restore that back to him. Why? Because God can do that. Right? Do you pray knowing that God is in control? He establishes kingdoms. He knocks them down. Whether it's Babylon or the Medo-Persians that you'll be introduced to before too long, or Rome that you'll be introduced to, or the United States of America. It's quiet in here now when I said that one, right? Surely, surely God would not tear us down you better wake up you better wake up folks nothing falls outside of the parameters the parameters of his sovereign decrees nothing falls outside of it so he's the one that gives wisdom to wise men his advisors could not say anything to him significant because they did not know the true and living God but our God gives wisdom and knowledge that's the that's what the antithesis is. They don't know, but God does. He has ultimate wisdom. He reveals profound and hidden things. He knows what this, what's in the darkness, and our God dwells in the light. So he praises God for answering prayer. And Daniel could say he is God alone, but he also could say he is my God, personal God. So in everything, above in verse 23... So if everything above in verse 20, 23 wasn't true, then verse 24 could not be true. If God wasn't absolutely sovereign over all things, and if He is not in control, then I'll tell you it's absolutely meaningless to pray. There are some people that say this, well, if God is sovereign, then why should I pray? I would suggest to you that if God is not sovereign, there's no use for you to pray. Why pray to a God who is impotent and who is limited? And may not have your best at heart. Maybe you wish this, and if God is incapable, then, then he can't meet that need. But if you're going to the God of Daniel, like this given to us in the Word of God, you better know full well that he has all power. You need to know full well that he controls all things, that he has all wisdom and all power, and all of it belongs to him. I, don't think, I think if Daniel didn't believe in the sovereignty of God, he'd have said to Ariok, go ahead and kill us. Because my God is limited, and he can't do any more than your enchanters can do. But that's not the case. He praises God because of wisdom, power, sovereignty. God can do it. What did he say to Mary through the angel? With God, nothing shall be impossible. Right? Sinclair Ferguson would remind us, the measure of your spirituality does not lie in the fervency of your prayer in the time of crisis, but in the wholeheartedness of your worship when God actually acts in grace. I like it. Because we in America like to pray, and if we do, absolutely know that that was in response to praying and God answered, we forget to worship and give Him thanks. We're just off to the next thing that we want God to give us, whether it's a Corvette or... Cadillac or whatever that might be. You say, well, that's kind of meaning it. Well, no, we pray like that sometimes, don't we? God bless me with things. But what was extraordinary here is that 
he got most excited about the fact that the sovereign God answered the prayer and he began to praise him and thank him. He abounded in thanksgiving to his God for meeting that prayer. And it reminds us that part of our deep depravity is that we do not want to honor him as God. Have you all read Romans 1? They did not honor him as God, but made the creator into a creature. And we forget to give him thanks. Do you remember the parable of the tenth leper? Right? Only one came back to give him thanks. Now, I think only parents can understand this. Because we have kids. We have crumb snatchers. Right? We got these young'uns. And we grow them. We, we, we try to raise them in the nurture and admonition of the Lord. But only parents can understand when you do things for children. And they either show gratitude or they show ingratitude. Well, I can tell you now that we as Christians act much like four-year-olds when it comes to praying and seeing our God answer prayer. What answer prayer should do is should draw your heart to worship the King and give Him thanks because He is the one that, He's the only one that can act on our behalf. I want you to know this morning that God designs our situation so that we will depend upon His wisdom. Some of you came here this morning. You don't know if you're coming or going. You really don't know why you're here. But I'm telling you, God Almighty brought you here in order to hem you in so that He could teach you His wisdom and so that you will wholeheartedly depend upon Him. God must do something because we can't do anything. So God begins to work Manipulate the situations to put you in a situation where that you, were, you will utterly depend upon Him alone and trust God for all things. Now, do you remember what the advisor said? Can't anything. God hasn't come in flesh. Unless He does, there's absolutely no way. Uh, only divine beings can do what you're asking. Y'all remember that part? Y'all do remember that part, right? Well, God can do it, and He did, and He does dwell with us. Isn't that awesome? The Word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we beheld His glory, the glory of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. It's the incarnation. It's the enfleshment of God, the Son, leaving the confines of heaven, coming down to this earth and putting on human flesh. That's what the enfleshment is. It's called Emmanuel. God is with us. Right? We know it took place. You shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. And again, let me remind you, 1 Corinthians chapter 1. Listen. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. And... Because of Him, you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God. Righteousness and sanctification and redemption. We turn to Christ only because He is the very wisdom of God. Don't you see it in the text? He's your righteousness. Right? That's wisdom from God. Some of you are in this building and you think, you know what, when I stand before the Lord... My good is going to outweigh my bad, and God's going to let me in. Not going to happen. 
Your goodness is as a filthy rags before a sovereign God. Our God is so holy He cannot even look upon sin. The Bible says, For by grace are you saved through faith, and that not of yourself. It's a gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. I'm trying to get you to see this morning that the wisdom of God is telling you today that you can't go to heaven without Jesus. You have to have a righteousness that is not of yourself. It's a gift of God, thus the Reformation. Luther was reading down through Romans and he stumbled across that and said, how can God be both just and the justifier of men? That's the divine dilemma. How can God remain just and forgive sinners like me and you? Only through Christ could God remain just, having never sinned, and be the bearer of our sin in order that you might be saved. So righteousness. What about sanctification? Here's the wisdom of God. You can't become more like Jesus unless you're saved and unless you're trusting in Him. He becomes your righteousness and your sanctification and your redemption. That's the wisdom of God. Only God has this wisdom. I've told you simple gospel math, have I not? Jesus plus nothing equals everything. If in your life it is Jesus plus works, or Jesus plus the sacraments, or Jesus plus icons, Jesus plus Mary, Jesus plus Anthony, Jesus plus anything is not salvation. It's Jesus only that saves. It's His righteousness only that saves. Not baptism. That doesn't save you. You can be baptized so many times, the tadpoles know your social security number. But that doesn't qualify you for heaven. you got to be saved by grace through faith and have a righteousness that's only in Jesus. We have absolute confidence that when we have Christ, we have everything. Look at me, folks. Do you have confidence that when you go to heaven, Jesus Christ is going to carry you there? And if he doesn't, you're just damned. Do you have that kind of confidence in Jesus? That's the wisdom of God. He's putting you in a place today where you trust Him and trust Him only. So, can you pray and trust the God that created the world, that controls all things, that created this world by simply speaking a word, no matter what your trouble is? No big deal for our God. No big deal whatsoever. He holds the whole world in His hand. He does all things according to the counsel of His own will. Wow, that gives me comfort, right? It ought to give you comfort that he does this. Can you trust the God who gave his son for you? He's already demonstrated that he's already committed to your eternal best. Because he's given you the son of God. In the end, in the end he is our only hope. I urge you to join Daniel and Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, and all the brothers and sisters in the world and in heaven, and the angels, for us to exclaim, for the Lord is great and highly to be praised. He is to be feared above all gods. Why? Because the Lord made the heavens. Psalm 96, 4 through 5. Great God, you are highly exalted. You are to be feared with reverential awe and respect. You made the heavens. You control all things. And Lord, just as you gave Daniel wisdom to know what the dream was and its interpretation, and you did so to show your greatness, 
God, you sent your son into this world. The Godhead bodily. Into this world. The very wisdom of God. In order for us to know how to be saved. To trust in Jesus only. That's the wisdom of God. It's foolishness to the world. But for those of us who are in the mode of believing, it is is the aroma of life unto life. But for those who are perishing, it is the aroma that has a smell to it. It's the aroma of death unto death for those who are perishing. Father, may you work in the hearts of people today. For Christians, God, may we trust that you are sovereign. That you can even take a bad situation to declare your name as great. You control all things. And for lost people, may they see Jesus today, the very wisdom of God. In your name we pray. Amen.